Thanks to Airbnb for sponsoring this episode of Industry Focus. Whether you're looking for some side cash or a steady income, hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you've made yet. Go to airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting and learn about a $100 Amazon gift card offer for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, and we're talking about our favorite tips and tricks to use when buying a home. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined in studio by Motley Fool contributors Dan Klein and Maury Backman. Dan and Maury, good to have you here. Hey, Nick. How are you? Hey. Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm excited we're going to talk about home buying today, because when you think about it, the home is the most expensive thing that the average person buys in their lifetime. It's part of the American dream, but it's something that Again, the only the average person only does once or twice, so it's really hard to understand exactly what you need to do when you go through this process, and it's really complicated. So we have the two of y'all here today to talk about your favorite tips and tricks. I know Dan's bought several <laughs> properties over the I, years. I am not the average person. My wife and I, in the first 11 years we lived together, moved every year. They weren't all purchases. Some of them were rentals. We lived in New York. But even our first three homes we owned, we were there less than 18 months before it was a housing boom. So we would look and see, wow, our house is worth X amount more. What if we move to this town that isn't quite as nice? And we did this sort of home trade step up game a lot of times. Yeah, a little location arbitrage to kind of kind of step on up. Um, well, to talking about, you know, a normal market and what you should do, you know, just every time you buy a home, let's go through you know, y'all's top five tips when it comes to, to home buying. And the first one y'all have is to make sure to have a 20% down payment on the home to avoid uh, What's PMI stand for? Private mortgage insurance. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, okay. Which, which sounds like it's a good thing for you, the it buyer. It is not. It is not, right? Dan, tell them. So PMI is basically insurance you pay for that protects the bank or the lender. So it's more or less like saying, hey, like I'm going to buy auto insurance, and that auto insurance doesn't pay repairs for me. If I have to bring the car in to be repaired, the auto dealer is insured of getting paid. So basically, you're paying for insurance that if you default, they will get paid anyway. And in general, if you don't have 20% equity, you have to pay PMI. And there's no hard and fast rule that when you get to 20% equity, you're allowed to ask your bank to remove PMI. They don't have to do it. And the last thing you want to do is have to refinance your mortgage, which comes with you know two to five percent in closing, closing costs, costs. Yep. just to get rid of this payment. So we understand that twenty percent equity is not attainable for everyone, but there is a major negative. You know, on, on a two hundred thousand dollar loan, maybe like one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars a month in something that you're paying for that in no way benefits you. Right. PMI, some people think, oh, okay, it's just like a little fee you pay up front, kind of like you roll it into your closing costs. It's not. It's essentially a surcharge on your mortgage payment every month for a, what, for what could be a very long time. Right, to insure the bank if they have to foreclose right. on you. And hopefully, you're going to pay the thing off and you know that you're a responsible right. borrower. Hopefully. So, And one of the issues right now is that appraisals tend to be very, very conservative. So you might live in your house for two years and go, wow, the market's exploded. I paid 300 It's worth 400 now. I have 20% equity. Good luck getting an appraisal to match that, which is what's required. Right. So unless you're actually paying down the original loan, it becomes very difficult to get rid of PMI. Right. But when we look at the data, most people really don't end up putting down 20% on their home. Most people, when they buy their first home, actually put down 5% or less. Do you have any advice for people that are trying to save down, save this 20% down payment, what they can do to get there to, to avoid these kind of issues with PMI? 
Well, first of all, I mean, and I think it just boils down to like the same strategy you would use anytime you're trying to hit any sort of savings goal. Um, map out a budget and just live really frugally to bank cash. Um, get yourself a side job if you need it. You know, there's a lot of ways to drum up extra money in a not so lengthy period of time if you really commit to it. I also think you need to figure out why you don't have the 20%. If you're buying a home you can easily afford, and that extra 15% you're inv- you have invested in other areas that are producing a better return than not having PMI and and the the, the small amount less you'll pay, then that's sensible. If you're only putting 5% down because you're stretching your budget to get there, you don't have any equity to play with. You don't, you don't have any ability, if things go wrong, to sort of tap into your house to save your house. Right. So you're probably buying a house you can't afford. Another question a lot of folks probably have is, hey, I've got this big chunk of student debt uh, that, that's kind of hanging over my head, but I want to be in a home. I'm getting to the age where I want to have kids and things like that. How should folks think about whether focusing on paying off their student debt before getting into a home or or carrying both at the same time? What are the factors folks should take into account when making those sorts of decisions? Um, To an extent, I think they're two different beasts, right? Because it's not unusual for someone to, you know, these days to carry student debt for, you know, unless you've got like a a federal loan that's a reasonable, you know, a reasonable sum, it's probably going to take you more than 10 years to pay off your loans, which means that conceivably you're hitting your 30s your mid-30s, you want to buy a house, maybe you're not free of that debt. I don't think it's a bad idea to have some sort of student debt and take on a mortgage as long as you have the income to keep up with all of those payments. I don't think, you know, having student debt needs to be a barrier to home ownership. I think it boils down to, like Dan said, just take a look at your finances and make sure you can actually afford this home, keeping in mind that you've got this debt payment every month for the foreseeable future. And student loan debt is an exception to the debt rule. You might have a car payment. You might have student loan debt. Don't buy a house if you have a bunch of credit card debt. First of all, your ability to get a loan will be very compromised if you have that level of debt. So really put yourself in position where pay off what you can. Consolidate your student loans to the best rate possible. Remember that when you go to a bank or a lender to borrow money, you want to put the best picture forward. And they're going to look at your debt-to-income ratio. So you might get a better rate on a loan if you pay down 20000 of student debt. It might be worth waiting 18 months so you could do that or a year, however long it takes you. So really, this is an area where you don't have to apply for a mortgage. You can go talk to a mortgage broker. You can go talk to your, your credit union or your bank and see, okay, I'm going to apply for a mortgage a year from now. What can I do to make my picture look the best? When, when we applied in, in Florida, we had credit card debt because we had put all of our moving expenses on the credit card and we were just in the cycle, hadn't paid it off. And when I sat down with the mortgage broker, he said, oh, you need to pay that bill in full now. And we did. So like, you really want to prepare and start preparing not a week before you apply, but at least a year before you apply. Right. And that leads into something else. And it's just a really easy thing that everyone can do. Check your credit score before, <laughs> before you apply for a mortgage. If your credit score is not good, you might either not get approved for that mortgage, or you might snag a pretty unfavorable rate, and you don't want to be locked into that for however long you know it is until you're able to refinance. And then, as Dan said, there's a cost to refinancing. So just you know, be aware of where you stand credit-wise, too. Yeah, and I'm glad y'all mentioned refinancing costs, because your next tip is to be aware of these closing costs. Can you talk about what closing costs are and how significant they can be when you're getting your first mortgage or refinancing an existing mortgage? 
Yeah, they can be pretty substantial. They can be like anywhere, I think, from two to five percent of basically the the cost of your the value of your loan. So it's everything from in most states, you need a lawyer. The other side needs a lawyer. There are recording fees for the deed. Origination fees. We once paid something called a miscellaneous fee. And <laughs> when I complained about it, it was $175, $150 on like a $60,000 mortgage at the time. We were buying a co-op in New York. And I said to the bank, what is this? I'm not paying a miscellaneous fee. If you can't tell me what it's for. Right. And they said, well, you don't have to pay it, but we're not going to write the check. <laughs> like so, So you need to understand, and in some cases – you might, as a buyer, be able to ask the seller to cover a portion of the closing fees. In some cases, they're getting a big chunk of cash. They're cashing out their house. So for you to, if you're a well-qualified buyer and it's going to be an easy close, they might go to you and say, all right, uh, we'll pay some of it. But that's more of an, a concession because yes. it is 100% the buyer's burden. And the rules are different in different states. In Florida, you don't need a lawyer. So if you're a real estate agent has handled this type of transaction before, you might save $1,000 on not having a lawyer do absolutely nothing. The lawyer doesn't right. come to the closing, just rubber stamps a bunch of papers. So you really need to look at every line item there and question. If there's something that doesn't make sense or you go, hey, uh, can't I do that myself? Sometimes you can. You can do some of the filing or the title lookup or who knows what. It's different in every state, so you need to understand it. Right, but you can't. But I will say that in many cases, the closing costs really are not negotiable. However, your lender should give you some sort of good faith estimate at some point in the process that tells you what you're actually looking at in closing costs, so you can prepare for that. And it's a good faith estimate because, depending when you close in the month, like we sold a house that had an oil burner, and you have to pay for the amount of oil that's left in the the, the price of oil changes, the amount changes. So literally, like. An hour before closing, somebody came in and did those numbers. Uh, different costs might change. So if it's the first of the month, you might have to pay an HOA, or if it's someplace that it's quarterly, maybe they've already paid it, so you have to pay them back. Right, for or you the might period. have to you might have to prepay a portion of your property taxes. Right. So you know there's and that just kind of like gets tacked on. Now the one thing about closing costs, though, um, you can often just roll them into the mortgage. So it's not like let's say your closing costs are total six thousand dollars. It's not like you're then expected to necessarily write a checkout for $6,000 that day, hand it over, say, here, here's my closing cost. You can often roll it in, and that makes it a little bit more manageable, but it is something to just be aware of. And when you refinance, that's a case where you want to shop around. A credit union might have a very low cost of refinancing. Your bank, to keep your business, might be willing to do a 1% you know, sort of refinance. Right. If your credit is good and you're refinancing because you started with maybe an unfavorable mortgage. Most people now, rates are so low, it's hard to refinance at a lower rate if you have a mortgage in the last four or five years. But if you had bad credit, if you made a bad decision, talk with your bank, and sometimes they'll do like kind of a fake refinance, right. where they just give you better terms because you're a good customer. Right. right. And the transparency around a lot of these things with mortgages has really, really bumped up since 2008. You know, I remember in law school doing, doing a class about you know, residential mortgages and the kind of the one pager that the banks have to give you that really break out all, all these different fees in the mortgage. If you go shop around, it's really easy to look right on the, the piece of paper they hand you at the bank to really compare among what your options are. So really, really something to recommend yeah. for folks. Let's go into your, your next tip. Tip number three is, is to know what the taxes are going to be on your property. And what, what's the way folks can, can keep track of that when maybe they're looking at a potential uh, real estate purchase? Well, so I would say two things about that. Number one, I mean, 
property, the current property tax bill is something that should be disclosed to you at the time that you're just plain looking at the house or, or whatever the home is. Um, if your realtor doesn't have that information on the listing, which would be rare, um, you can usually just access like local or county records and look it up. But here's the thing. You don't want to just look at what the property taxes are that day that you're going to look at the house. You want to look at the property tax history because some areas are more prone to significant property tax hikes than others. So if you're looking at a home that's got, let's say, $6,000 in property taxes, but you see that just two years ago those property taxes were 4500 that's a red flag. And you also want to look at the neighborhood because – a lot of cases, a sale of a home triggers a, 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 a reevaluation. So the little old lady who's lived there for 40 years, her taxes might be 5000 a year. Next door might be paying twelve because the home has changed hands six times. So if you buy that house, you might find in the next year, all of a sudden your tax bill is going to go up. You also want to make sure that you have the same tax law as the person you're buying from. In Florida, we have a homestead exception. There is a certain amount of your property tax. If this is your primary residence, you don't have to pay if you've lived there a certain amount of time. On a more expensive home, it's not a relevant number. But on like a $100,000 condo, it can be like half the property tax. So you might see, oh, wow, this is only a $600 a year property tax. But for you, it's actually a $1,300 a year property tax. Right. So you really need to have someone working with you, ideally a real estate agent, who knows the market and can tell you, hey, this is where it is now, this is where it's going, this is how it will apply to you. Yeah, we mentioned off the top of the show how you know going through a real estate transaction is something that very few people do. However, you know realtors do this as part of their business, so they can really help guide you through some of these issues. One question I wanted to follow up with you guys talking about real estate tax is, with the changes in, in the in the tax law when it comes to state and local tax deductions, how does that affect uh, the math that you do when, when looking at a real estate purchase and really evaluating your tax bill uh, for your property? Well, you know, if you live in a high property tax state, um, it could impact you a lot. Uh, where I live in New Jersey, I think <laughs> the average property tax bill is somewhere in the ballpark of like eight to nine thousand dollars a year. Um, but I know people in my own neighborhood who are paying easily double that. Um, with the SALT deduction, the state and local tax deduction, which encompasses property taxes, now capped at $10,000. Um, there's a lot of folks out there, if you live in a high property tax state, you're not fully writing off your property taxes, not even close. So there's that consideration. So I live in a no state income tax state. So that property tax deduction is an important one. Right. And I also live in a state that generally has bad schools. So our property taxes aren't that high. So you're in a position where, for me, I'm not going to hit that ten that $10,000 limit. So I theoretically could buy something with higher property taxes and have it be a benefit. Thanks to Airbnb for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. If you're looking for some extra income, then hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. That's because it's free to list your home, and Airbnb offers a $1 million host guarantee that helps protect your property in the unlikely event that something goes wrong. Host when you want, how you want. It's all up to you. There's so many ways to utilize extra income from hosting on Airbnb, like paying your bills, funding travel, or subsidizing home improvements and saving up for retirement. 
You know, if you like to travel, why not let use your home to make you money while you're out and about on your vacations? You know, I can tell you for myself as a, as a traveler, I don't think I've been on a vacation where I haven't stayed in the Airbnb in an Airbnb in the past three or four years. It's you know, it's a much better experience, at least for me, uh, than staying at a hotel. And it's one of the first places I go to uh, when I travel. Uh, go to airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting, and you'll receive a $100 Amazon gift card if you generate $500 in booking value by July 31st. That's airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting and learn about a $100 Amazon gift card offer for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, let's go talk about your next tip, and that's to know the maintenance costs on your home. And, and that can be difficult to do because how am I going to know when's the last time they replaced the air conditioner or things like that? How do you track that for a property you may not be as familiar with over time? Well, first of all, just as a general rule of thumb, um, and there's always exceptions, but as a general rule of thumb, homeowners are advised to estimate their um, standard upkeep at anywhere from 1% to 4% of their home's value. But that's standard upkeep. That doesn't account for things like the roof needing to be replaced or the heating system going kaput. Now, the logical part of you will say that if you're buying a fairly new home, your upkeep might fall toward the lower end of that range. And if you're buying, you know, a home that was constructed in 1922, it might be higher. Um, but definitely get yourself a good home inspector. Plan for the worst. So Maury has been at our vacation home uh, yes. in the Orlando area. And we bought a home and I had it, – it, our inspection was not required, but we had a contractor go look at it. And the contractor looked at it and he said, well – the roof is going to be good for a few years, but eventually you'll need a roof. And we had the AC company come service the AC, and they said, yeah, your unit's not powerful enough on a hot day to keep your whole house cool quickly, but there's nothing wrong with it. It will last three or four more years. They both died within a week of each other. Right. The AC had to be replaced immediately, you know, four or $5,000 expense. The roof, it started after one of the storms raining inside the house. Luckily, he replaced those things before I got there. <laughs> Actually, the, a, the roof still a, needs to be oh, done. Oh, no, okay. Well, the air conditioning so, is working So great. two expenses that I'd counted on and said, like, okay, I'm going to have to spend about ten dollars to $12,000 on these over the next three years, I had to do all at once. So it wasn't fun, but... All it did was speed up my expenditure on something I knew was coming. So you need to ask, how old is the roof? The, the heating and AC system, not only do you need to know how old it is, you might need to research that unit, how often does it need to be replaced. Right. If, if, like Your hot water heater now is going to go every three years. Like that's, but that's a four or $500 expense. It's not that big a deal. But the right... HVAC unit might last 15 years. A cheap one might last six. So you really need to do your homework there. And a home inspection is important. And do things that, like, and I bought a lot of houses and I've made every one of these mistakes. I now flush every toilet, mm -hmm. turn on the tubs, fill them, and see if they drain. Because we had a tub that didn't drain and we're told in a house that didn't have a basement that our pipes were under the living room and the pipes were collapsing. Oh, great. Ooh. The That's fix to that <laughs> is to dig up your living room and replace the pipes from a house built in the 50s. So you really need to see what they are because once you buy it, it's yours. I definitely agree. <laughs> when you're walking through that house, when you're interested in a house, 
touch everything. Open doors. Do they stick? Are they splintering? Chances are maybe there's some sort of issue. There's a reason that things are getting warped. Um, another thing, and I'm not sure how to check for this, sinking foundations are a big yeah. one. How do you check for a sinking foundation? You, you, you have a contractor a take contractor a look at the house. It, right? uh, you know, a good home inspector will notice that, but you really need to put the home through its paces. It sounds silly and you're not like literally going to take a shower while you're walking around the house. But, but you could turn the shower turn on. Turn the shower on for yeah. five minutes and see if the water's still hot. Um, look up. We've made this mistake. You look up, you'll see water damage. If you've noticed that one area of paint is nicer than the other, they don't have to disclose that, but they have to answer it if you ask the question. Right. And they might say, yeah, someone left the tub on, it overflowed, or maybe there's a leak in the roof. So you won't always get to the bottom of why something happened, but sometimes there's water damage where, yeah, our washer dryer exploded and we had to replace all this, or as in the case of one of the houses, hey, the basement floods every time it rains. That's right. why the washer-dryer were up on cement blocks, and I didn't think to ask the question. So long story short, pay attention to detail, in particular when you're walking through the home. I, I want to follow up. So on the front end, you've accounted, you've accounted for your repair expenses. But a thing that really is significant for me when I'm thinking about owning a home as a millennial is – I'm going to have to do these repairs at some point in time. When I, when I was at my parents' house, you know, maybe I vacuumed the house, maybe maybe I did the laundry, but I didn't put a new roof on the house, I didn't replace the air conditioner, I didn't do all these types of types of, of maintenance repairs that you don't really do until you become a homeowner. So what advice do you have to someone who might be a new homeowner who might not be familiar with these sorts of, of maintenance projects that you have to do to figure out who, who a good contractor is? How, can I do this repair myself? All those practical tips that just come into actually owning a home yourself. So you have to do your homework. We've been very lucky that in both of our home locations, we have contractors that we've become friends with. In one case, it was the guy that did maintenance for the previous owner. His wife now picks my son up when I'm not there. He does odd jobs. I can't change a light bulb. and so, so he does odd jobs for me in between work. So we've been very lucky, but we have to replace our floor. We're doing all new flooring. And flooring in a condo in Florida, you can't do on an owner permit. It has to be a licensed contractor permit. Right. So my friend, who is very handy but not a licensed contractor, can't do it. So I had him help me interview people to do it. So you have to, you have to get the references. You have to check their past jobs. You have to Google what should a roof replacement cost me in this area and understand the difference between a $6,000 roof and a $9,000 roof. Right. Or in the case of some places with snow, the difference between a $9,000 roof and a $30,000 metal roof that can bear all the weight of snow and you never have to shovel your roof. So you have to figure out all these things. And if you're handy, well, maybe you can like put a TV bracket up. I can't. So that's something like you could pay Best Buy and it's $250 for them to do it, or you could go online and pay someone $40 to come over and do it, and it might not be as clean, and the person might not be as professional, but your TV will be hanging. And so I think that's something else, you know, it's a good point that Dan touched on. Um, you have to know your own abilities when you go into homeownership, and if you're pretty convinced that you fall into the I can't change a light bulb camp, you need to budget for you need to pad your budget for maintenance and repairs because chances are you'll be outsourcing a lot of stuff that you can't do yourself. I'm pretty not handy. Thankfully my husband is handy. So if it's a simple plumbing repair or you know something pretty pretty basic, we're not dropping 100 bucks on a service call or 150 bucks here and there. He's doing it himself. But make no mistake about it, if our roof ever needs to be replaced, I mean we're calling roofers. And what type of home you buy? 
should reflect your handiness. We don't live in a single-family home because I can't fix stuff. We live in a condo. So the windows are not my responsibility. The outside, the roof, the – so I don't have to clean the pool. I don't have to, I don't know, dust the gym. So that made a lot of sense for me. And I joke that I can't change a light bulb, but the last time we had a light bulb go out, I climb up on the ladder. I unscrew the thing. It took a while. It was kind of difficult. I changed the light bulb. I put the thing on, and I think, well, I'm not going to screw it in quite as hard, so it's easier next time. Two minutes later, kablamo, <laughs> glass everywhere. You know. I saw where that one was going, right? <laughs> and my wife has forbidden me from changing a light bulb to the point that we've changed some of our fixtures to put in LEDs that don't need to be changed right. You know, more than like once every 10 years. Right. Another thing is if you are relying on outside contractors – uh, always, always comparison shop. Even if you get a good recommendation, never just go with the first quote you get. Because, I mean, what do you what do you really know if you're getting a fair price unless you get a couple of different people in and say, all right, well, this one wants to charge me 800 for this project. This one wants to charge me 650. What is it about this first person that's worth 150 dollars more? It's very much like buying a car. If you go in knowing what you should pay, like with our flooring, we have one quote that's about 9,000 dollars and one that's about seven. The guy who's charging nine is better. The quality of the flooring is better. What we haven't figured out is if the cheaper one is good enough. Right. <laughs> so, and it, prob- right. it probably is because they're both pretty nice flooring because of the statute requires you to have a certain thickness and a certain. That's the other thing you need to know. In some markets, you can do a roof repair under a certain dollar amount without a permit. In other markets, you need a permit to do anything exterior. In, right. s- in some, you don't need to do interior work unless it's electrical. So you really need an- – Oh, and by the way, on those permits, often your township or whatnot will charge you for the privilege of updating or repairing your own home by and they charging w- you a permit fee. And they won't so. come and spend uh, – on our flooring, it's 10 percent. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, I think in my town, the permit fee is generally a function of the cost of the project. So that when we finished our basement, um, we had to take our estimate to the township and say, OK, we're looking at spending X to finish our basement. And they said, oh, great. Well, we're glad you're doing this, this and this, because now we get to charge you whatever percent of that. And it's like, awesome. So we budgeted in, you know, what we thought we could afford for the basement. And then we got slapped with this ridiculous, like, multi-hundred dollar And what's worse is your property tax can increase if you markedly improve the home or increase the square feet of livable area. Mm -hmm, Which is what (laughs) – which is – trust me, when you live in New Jersey and you basically finish off your basement and add, like, a good 900, 1,000 square feet of extra living space, your property tax bill starts to look really, really scary. So all that to say – Know your maintenance costs. Know what you need, and, and do the research before. I, th- I before think we're you saying don't money. buy a house. Right. <laughs> no, no, don't 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 not buy a house if you're if you're equipped to buy a house. But just really know what you're in for. Know that know that basically the down payment that you come up with is just the tip of the iceberg. You are signing on to be financially responsible for maintaining a structure for the foreseeable future, which um, which is why I always tell people, if you're buying a house, and let's be clear, everyone should do this, but if you're buying a house, make sure you have a healthy emergency fund. Make sure you have a healthy amount of money in the bank, ideally a good six months worth of living expenses or more, um, just because you're now responsible for, you know, again, all these all these things that could go wrong. And amazing things go wrong. Right, right. <laughs> I, I will say that my husband and I bought a new construction house back in 2009, and I can't tell you how many repairs we had within the first two years. And you'd think we'd be protected from that because everything was brand spanking new, but no. Yeah. 
Uh, all that to say, a home is a long-term commitment, and you need to treat it that way when it comes to maintenance expenses and saving for your home. And as part of that, that kind of ties in nicely with our fifth tip, which is to think beyond your immediate needs. You're going to be in this home for a, for the long term. What needs might you need in the future? You want to talk a little bit about, about that and how to think about that when buying a home? So a lot of people buy a first home when they have a baby. And you, you see this on House Hunters. Oh, that room's small, but it will be the nursery. Well, it takes a lot of vision as a parent to figure out your kid's going to get bigger. So we once <laughs> or mo- you might have more. Of we them. once moved out of a house because we could not picture our son ever being able to do stairs. So we moved to a ranch house, and it was kind of a dangerous <laughs> house where it was hard to protect the stairs. So it sort of made sense. But when we looked at houses, we didn't go like, let's buy a house with stairs that we can easily put gates on. We just didn't look at houses with stairs, not thinking our kid will get older and stairs might be a benefit in terms of separation. Maybe your kid only needs a small amount of space outside when they're young, but as they get older, they might want to kick a ball around. Is there a park nearby? What's the walking distance to schools? Uh, is there a How supermarket? The yeah. You know. What's the crime like? You know, when you're your age and don't have kids, you have more flexibility to buy in a neighborhood where the schools are bad. But your resale is harder because it limits your pool of people you can sell to. So you really need to think about, and look, you can't predict every part of life. People have kids accidentally, they get sick when they didn't plan on it, lots of things happen. But if you logically know you're probably gonna have kids or you're you're probably not gonna have kids, or hey, I might work from home in a year from now, so I need space in my house to do that. You need to sort of at least do a, here's what we think is gonna happen test. Right, right. So what, what do you think about the idea when you talk about you know, making a long-term commitment to your home and preparing uh, for the future, what your future needs might be, of the concept of a starter home? This is my starter home. I'm going to live in this home for a period of time, and then I'm going to resell it and, and move up to a larger home as my needs adjust. Is that a decision that's not prudent for someone to make? I think it's an okay decision to make, especially if, for example, let's say you buy a smaller home that's a starter home because right now it's just maybe two of you, and you know that you want to have kids in five or six years, and at that point, the thing is, remember those closing costs we talk about? We ha- we have to you have to be in your home for a certain amount of time to essentially recoup those costs. I think what is it like about three to five years? They it, say it, it, dep- it depends, depends what you on- pay. Um, but is that like the gen- is that the general yeah. benchmark? I think they say three to five years. So it's not a good idea to buy a starter home and think, all right, well, I'll, I'll flip it in like you know in, in a year or I'll unless flip. look if you live in a market where you can say, wow, the prices are only going up, and this is a hot area and the schools are great, and I can reasonably assume if I live here three years, I'm going to be able to sell at a premium that covers all of these. That's a risk. But Maury lives in a market where there's very limited rental. When we lived in Connecticut, right. you could not rent a single family home and guarantee you'd be able to stay there through your kids going to school. So you had to buy a starter home. It was the price of entry to being in that market. In, in Florida, there is almost no place where there aren't rental communities next to, to ownership communities. So in that case, I would actually suggest you rent below your means so you can save up for the home. But this depends on, we talked about sort of the house as a savings account, which is sort of a bad idea. But if you're not the type of person who can be disciplined and put the money away, you might be better off having a home that you use and build equity as a way to buy your bigger home. Right. 
Here's a question. Say, say I'm moving to a new market. You, you talked about in Florida where the, the availability of rental properties or, or, or in Connecticut where, where you have to purchase a home. If you're unfamiliar with the market and you're moving somewhere and you're trying to plan for the future, what advice might you have for, for someone like that for, for, to plan what, what, they, what purchases they need to make? Go stay there. <laughs> so, Spend some time there. Yeah, but right. before we bought our Orlando property, we rented, probably illegally, Airbnb a lot of the time, in not the quite the complex we bought in, but in many similar ones. So we learned things like we didn't want a gate. A gate's added security, but if Maury's going to stay there for the weekend with her family, I have to put her on the list. And the list never works right. So it was always a hassle. We learned we didn't want that. We learned we didn't want to be near the main highway. We wanted to be one highway over. So if I wanted to run out and get coffee, I didn't get hit with the Disney traffic that can make a mile take 35 minutes. So you really need to learn the little things like that. And that's not always plausible to do. But I am a big fan of if you have to move markets, rent for a year because you will learn what you don't like. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think a lot of good practical advice for folks looking to buy a home. As we set off the top of the show, it's a transaction that people don't do a lot in their life. And so to get some advice from you all who have done it before and have gone through some of these issues, whether it's maintenance or any of those sorts of things, I think is really valuable. Before, before we go away, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners about buying a home, things that they really should focus on when they look to, to make a home purchase? Um, one big one, uh, assuming that you're set in your job and locked into your job, test run your commute. <laughs> That's a big one. You know, when, uh, when I moved out to New Jersey, I was uh, still working in Manhattan. And you'd think, oh, they're right next to each other. How bad a commute could that be? It was bad. Uh, you know, and, uh, but and, but and and one of the things is that you know I had been, my husband actually lived out there um, before he was my husband. He lived out there at the time, and I would come out on weekends a lot. I wasn't necessarily commuting during the horror of rush hour, so I didn't have a very fair um, idea of what it would actually be like in practice, day in day out. You really need to know what's important to you. So my wife and I have bought so many homes. We traded space for location. I live in downtown West Palm Beach. I can walk everywhere. But I went from 3,000 square feet in Connecticut to 1,350 square feet. But we knew we needed a third bedroom. Not because we have guests, but because we have cats and we can't close the door on the main bedroom. If she goes to bed an hour before I do, she can't close the door, so I can't watch TV in the living room. I go watch TV in the third bedroom with that door closed because for some reason the cats don't cry outside of that room. That sounds silly, but it's super important lifestyle to her getting up at six in the morning to go to work. I don't go to work. I sit on my couch and work. And so that was very important. We could have had a bigger two bedroom in the same building, but that layout wouldn't have worked for us. Yeah. Know your needs. I think. Know, I think know your needs. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dana Mori, thank you all so much for taking the time to talk to us and for, for sharing all your knowledge when it comes to the real estate purchases. Yeah, this is great. Thank you, and don't buy a tiny house. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible idea, even if it seems very like a great one. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Uh, Thanks to Dan Boyd for his work behind the glass. For Dan Klein and Maury Backman, I'm Nick Seifel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.